Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past shows and more information by going to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I invite you to come and engage with us on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram. Today on the podcast, we have Ryuji Chua, activist extraordinaire, who was featured on The Daily Show recently, and we're going to get into that conversation soon. Uh, but first, a, a quick correction. So last episode, I was talking about the new year, and I said that I've been vegan for 32 years. But actually, now that it's 2023, and I went vegan when I was 20, I have actually been vegan for 33 years, a kind listener pointed out. So just wanted to make that correction, because obviously, I can't do math. <laughs> and I wanted also to share with you something that I found interesting recently, just briefly. So I've mentioned before that I love National Geographic. I subscribe to the magazine and I love their documentaries. And in a recent Nat Geo magazine, there were two articles on the same page that that really, it, it, they contradicted each other. They showed really the profound contradiction that we as humans have when it comes to animals, our, our perception of animals. The page was just some very brief articles. I think there was just three on the page, breakthroughs in science. And one was really positive. It was about jumping spiders. This ecologist in Germany, uh, Daniela Rossler, she had observed behaviors and movements in these jumping spiders when they were sleeping that reflected or, or suggested dreaming that they might be dreaming while they're sleeping. So how the spider sleeps is they spin a strand of web and they suspend themselves upside down to sleep. And she observed that occasionally their legs would jerk or their bodies would move in similar ways to other animals, to us when we're dreaming. She further observed then with a magnifying glass that they had rapid eye movement, REM, while sleeping, which also suggests a dream state. This is the first time that dreaming has been observed in an animal without a backbone. And it's, you know, it's really unsurprising to me. I mean, I haven't ever thought about it, but if someone had asked me or if I had thought about it, I would have certainly thought, yeah, of course, spiders can dream. But, you know, we as humans have this perception of animals being so different from us, so primitive and unsophisticated that we need scientific proof of these things, these things that seem very matter of fact or straightforward to anyone kind of tuned into animals. But the best part was at the end of this brief article, it said, quote, the more we learn about jumping spiders' cognitive abilities, the less alien they seem and the more worthy of respect. And then there was a quote from the ecologist at the very end, and she said, quote, if they dream, I mean, what can you do? You can't smush a spider that dreams. So cool. I love that we're seeing this kind of recognition of the complexity of animals and a call for respect of insects, right? In a mainstream publication. It was, it was so beautiful to see. But then on the same page, on the same page, there was a brief write-up about how scientists are using the shells of crabs, 
shrimp, and lobsters for a substance in batteries. Uh, this material is called uh, chitosan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. It's C H I T O S A N. And that can be harvested from the hard shells of these sea creatures for a quote unquote sustainable biodegradable electrolyte for zinc batteries. And this could possibly replace lithium batteries. And lithium is very destructive because of the mining. And while I'm, of course, all for finding more ecological alternatives, and they were talking about the shells, you know, as seafood waste, so finding a use for food waste, but we're really creating an ecological crisis from fishing and taking sea life from the oceans. That in and of itself is an ecological crisis. And if this became a viable, widespread, in-demand material, it's just encouraging more destructive fishing and killing of these individuals. And I talk about crustaceans and mollusks and sentience and consciousness in the beginning of the last episode. So if you want to learn more about these sea animals, please have a listen to episode 72. But I just found it so interesting that on the same page of this magazine, they would talk about the cognitive ability of spiders and having respect for spiders, but then also essentially encouraging the killing of billions of sea animals to use their bodies for materials. It was just so striking, the cognitive dissonance. But of course, you know, when we use an animal as a commodity, they suddenly become something else. Animals used for food, for clothing, are somehow transformed out of their animalness and are just food, just a material. They lose their individuality, they lose their sentience, their complexity, so so that we can, on the same page, talk about spiders dreaming and acknowledge their complexity, but then killing crustaceans by the billions. But I think the silver lining here is that just a decade or two ago, it's really unlikely we would have seen the line about respecting spiders. I mean, that's new. We are definitely advancing in our thinking and our consideration of animals. So that is hopeful. That's certainly a sign of hope. It's never fast enough, but it's great to see that progress. Okay, so let's now get into our interview with Ryuji. We'll be talking more about fish, which is great. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, today we are honored to have Ryuji Chua joining us. He is an animal activist, filmmaker, and he seeks to make the world a better place for animals by creating educational resources on animal rights and animal ethics. He currently works as a video producer for Surge Activism and is an, is an advisor for the Vegan Hacktivists. And he was recently featured on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah to talk about animal rights and his latest independent documentary, How Conscious Can a Fish Be?, Welcome to the podcast, Ryuji. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I'm so excited to have you here. It was 
really amazing to see you on The Daily Show. I didn't even know that you were going to be on, and I kind of I watched The Daily Show, obviously, then. <laughs> and <laughs> it was just, just really, really uh, just incredible. When that happened, I was like, what is happening? I love this. <laughs> So I had to have you. Yeah, definitely had to have you on the podcast. So we like to start by getting to know you. I feel that all vegans are superheroes and all superheroes have a good origin story. So we would love to know your vegan origin story. Why and when did you go vegan? Sure. I became vegan in in 2015. And that was the result of me reading a book. It was a history book, actually, called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. And the reason I read that book was because history was always a topic that I felt like I didn't understand very well. Growing up when I was in school, I was always very good at those disciplines that required reasoning and logic, things like math and science. The cool thing about a math problem is that if you think hard enough about it, then in theory, you you can figure it out. But if you don't know what happens at a certain point in history, you can't just think about it hard enough and figure it out. You actually have to to know uh, because history is is not logical in, in that way. And so I, I was reading this book and around page 300 of the book, there was a section about modern industrial farming. And this was the first time that I've ever really thought about modern industrial farming. I grew up, uh, you know, here I'm, I'm in Paris, France. This is where I was born and raised. My mom's from Japan and my dad's from Singapore. So I pretty much ate animal products every single day of my life for every meal. And so I never I never thought about where these products came from. And for the first time, I was confronted with some of the realities of what happens in the meats, dairy, and egg industries. And on top of that, the author was also talking about not just the things that happen to animals that cause them a lot of suffering, much more than I previously imagined, but he also talked about... Um, how animals are sentient. And he illustrated how cows and pigs and chickens are different from human beings or the dogs and cats that we that we learn to love. But nevertheless, they feel and they think and they suffer. And this is something that I never really considered. I never spent time with cows or pigs or chickens or any animal that we use for food, really. And so I never thought about who they are. All I knew was this thing that I ate, like a steak or a piece of bacon or a piece of cheese, uh, but I never connected it to the animal. And I never thought that these animals were individuals, much like other animals that I I actually liked very much. And so reading that, uh, for the first time, I questioned whether or not these are foods that I actually want to continue eating. You know, the reason that I'd eaten meat, dairy, and eggs my whole life was not because I chose to do so. One day I had the choice to to eat these things that come from animals or not. And then I chose. It was rather I was bored into it uh, and I never questioned it. And for the first time, I was questioning it. And so what I did is I went on a deep dive. Uh, I tried to research as thoroughly as possible all the different industries that that use animals. And that got very, very dark very quickly. And I discovered that uh, the animals that we use, not just for food, but for other things like clothing and testing for cosmetics and even entertainment, uh, they actually suffer a lot more than we we typically think. And in my pursuit of understanding that, I not only read books and articles, but I also talked to farmers, for example. Uh, I've been on that quest for a long time, and, and now I've had the opportunity not just to talk to farmers, but people who used to work in slaughterhouses, people who used to be industry vets, etc. And understanding what happens in these industries is really what kickstarted me becoming vegan. But I think when it comes to fully changing uh, the most important question that I ask myself when it comes to how we should treat animals is the question, what if it was me? And so I asked myself, 
what if it was me who was in that farm, in that slaughterhouse, whose life was being taken because someone wanted to eat a sandwich? And I realized that that is not a life that I would want to live. I would not want to swap places with the animals that we're eating. And that being the case, if I wouldn't want to be in their position, then what justification do I have to put them in their position? And that's the moment that I I realized I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I probably shouldn't be doing this. And I became vegan. Yeah, that's great. I, I love that about your activism and your message of, you know, think about it from the animal's perspective. And I think we really need to have the understanding that these animals are sentient, sentient beings that they feel, they have emotion, they they feel like we do uh, to be able to have that message land. I think so many people think that they're just unfeeling, they don't, they're stupid, these kinds of stereotypes around animals. So I, I love your message, but I think a part of it is has got to be that these are emotional feeling sentient beings yeah sure yeah i think that it's 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 critically important because uh you know one thing i spent a lot of time doing is i spent a lot of time talking to people about what happens to animals and i would do actions like you know go, go out in the streets and hold up tvs that show what happens to animals in farms and slaughterhouses and people would, would walk by and and stop and then they would ask us questions we would talk to them have conversations and what i would always find is that i always found people's reactions to what they saw to be underwhelming. And what I mean by that is that these animals were undergoing immense suffering, suffering so great that most people who walk by it probably can't even imagine what it's like to be them. But despite that, they would be like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of bad. Like, yeah, I guess it's pretty bad. Uh, but they, they weren't outraged or deeply saddened by by what they were seeing. And I would always do the, this thought experiment with myself where I would ask what if these were not cows and pigs and chickens, but what if they were dogs and cats? Right. And it dawned on me that if they were dogs and cats, with much less cruelty and much less suffering, people would be much more outraged. Yeah. And so I asked, my, I, I asked myself the question, why is that? And my hypothesis is that with animals like dogs and cats, we recognize that they are individuals, that a dog is an animal who feels, who thinks, who suffers. While for a cow, this is not necessarily something that we, we, we might know it from a rational perspective, but it's not something that we feel. With dogs, yeah. we feel this. We, we feel their individuality, but because we don't spend time with cows and pigs and chickens and other farm animals, uh, it's not something that we feel for them. And so their suffering doesn't seem as bad. And that's why in my advocacy, I try to, uh, I, I always try to illustrate and tell stories about how I know these animals, they're not just these automatons who just go about their days and don't feel things but no they're actually individuals who have distinct personalities and they think about stuff and if we do things to them that would hurt a dog it's also going to hurt them as well yeah so you have created a video called how conscious can a fish be so speaking about individuals and animals and how they have emotion and consciousness and sentience I love that you talk about fish. It's so important. I really want to start here because we just don't talk about fish enough in the animal advocacy movement. If we talk about them at all, it's usually kind of a side note or we're talking about the environmental impact of the ocean. And, you know, and I I, I give presentations actually focused on fish. 
on the individual fish, on pain and sentience and all the things that that you point out in the video. And actually, we we use some of the same uh, same points and same studies from my talk that are in your video. So I'd, I'd really love to start here. Let's talk about fish. Why mm. do you think it's important to talk about fish? Sure. So the, the basic reason why it's critically important that we talk about fish, especially in animal protection circles, is that out of all the animals that we use for food, fish are the animals that we kill in the largest numbers. So you take chickens, for example, they're the land animals that we kill in the largest numbers. And every single year, we kill about 80 billion of them, which is about 10 times the current human global population. But for fish, even a conservative estimate is about 2 trillion, which is 250 times the, the number the, the global human population right now. And it's actually 17 times the number of humans who have ever lived. So the scale of what we're doing to fish is far larger than what we do to any other animal, although what we do to other animals is also huge. And secondly, both from a legal and cultural perspective, fish are the animals that we protect the least from cruelty and suffering. So from a legal perspective, you look at something like uh, the Humane Slaughter Act or equivalent legislations in different countries, and typically fish are omitted. And from a cultural perspective, we can do things to fish that would be easily outrageous if done to other animals. Take fishing, for example. Uh, you know, if I went to the park and I basically did what we do to fish more fishing to another animal, like a like a squirrel, I, I trap a squirrel, I take them, I, I go to the lake and dunk their head in the water, that would be outrageous. But yeah. if I do a similar thing to a fish and I hook their mouth and I take them out of the water and take a, take a photo for Instagram, uh, there's no problem. Mm. And that's why it's critically important that we talk about fish because not only in the scale of their suffering, the intensity of their suffering is probably one of the greatest that is experienced by any animal that uh, that we use as humans. In practice, what happens to fish on fishing vessels and in fish farms is much less regulated than farms that, that use other animals, although those ones are not even adequately regulated. So ultimately, that's why I think we need to talk about fish. And compared to other animals, I talked earlier about how with cows and pigs and chickens, we don't really see them as uh, as individuals. With fish, that's even less the case. You know, with cows and pigs and chickens, at least rationally, I think most people would agree that uh, they feel and they think and they suffer, and they might think that maybe they they are conscious to a lesser extent than other animals or something like that. But for fish, it's just the worst because a lot of people think that fish don't even feel anything, that they're not conscious, that they don't feel pain at all. And these stereotypes that we have about them are extremely harmful because they not only lead us to justify this immense suffering that we're causing them, but it allows us to mock those who try to speak up for that suffering or disregard their suffering entirely and say, well, who cares? It's just a fish, which is really unhelpful and very harmful. Yeah. Yeah. I love that in your video, you point out, and I, I knew this, but I haven't ever really talked about it in my presentations. And I think it is really important that when we are gauging how many animals that we kill when we're putting those numbers up, it's the individual animals for the land animals. But suddenly when you get to fish, it's by the ton. There's just so many and we have no idea how many individuals we're killing because it's in such massive numbers and it's, you know, just by weight. Uh, so it's such a huge, huge just massacre. But that in and of itself also decreases the individuality. Like we're, we're not seeing them as individuals being killed. We're seeing them as this product by weight 
that we're destroying, right? So even that de-individualizes them in a way, right? Yeah, no, I, I think so. And, and those all those numbers come from the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. So they have uh, several resources, one of which is a webpage where you can look up uh, how many animals are used in this and that industry. And, and you can look at it for different years and you can look at it for different um, regions in the world and different countries and so on and so forth. And so for animals like cows and turkeys and pigs and chickens, like the, the land animals, basically, uh, you can look up, for example, how many they how many chickens they estimate were killed in egg production in France. That's something that you can look up or you can look it up for the world for all these different animals. Uh, for fish, it's actually in a different resource. And it's basically their reports on, on, on the state of fisheries and aquaculture. And the one that I looked at, the latest one that was out uh, when I made that video was the one from 2020. And in that, they give an estimate for, you know, wh what is the scale of the fishing industry? But instead of giving that in number of individuals like they do for the land animals, they give it in tons. And I think the number was something like 189 million tons uh, of fish. Wow. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that number is in tons. And how does that translate to individuals? Uh, well, basically, no one knows. And there's yeah. one organization that tried to do that conversion for weights numbers that came from earlier years. Uh, and if you try to convert it using the same conversion rate, basically, uh, the, the estimate falls somewhere between one and three trillion, which is, is a, a massive interval. Uh, but even at the lower end, uh, one trillion is an unimaginably huge number. And and no doubt those big numbers make it hard for us to, to see the individuals. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you do get kind of lost in these kind of numbers. It's, it's just unfathomable. So people kind of just kind of tune it out. I think they feel like, wow, you know, it's, it's just too big to think about. So that's why it's so important to pull it back to the individual animal. Uh, and I love that you do that so well in your activism. And one thing that you talk about is how fish do feel pain, uh, which is so important. We've got to bust the myth that uh, fish don't feel pain. And you, in your video, you uh, talk about some of the uh, really interesting studies that have been done. And I talk about these studies as well in my presentation on fish. But but you came to this really incredibly, just incredibly interesting, but but seemingly, you know, common sense point in your video that I had never thought about. It's, it's kind of one of those moments that you're like, yeah, well, of course, that makes so much sense. Uh, that's how I felt when I was watching this, this part of your video. And it was about pain and the importance of pain to survival for an animal, right? You talk about this human condition called um, congenital insensitivity to pain, CIP, that very, very, very few humans on earth have. And you connect this condition to the critical nature of pain for survival, how we need pain for survival. Can you talk about this? This was really a, a really interesting point that you made. Sure. So congenital insensitivity to pain, like you said, is this condition that uh, when people have it, they are unable to feel pain. So for example, they can put their hands on a hot stove or they can fall from somewhere and break their leg and their hand is going to get burned and their bone is going to break, but they're not actually going to feel pain uh, like you or I would if we were to, to to do those things. And so on one hand, this might seem like a superpower because pain is awful in, in many cases. And wouldn't it be so great to, to not feel pain? But on another hand, another perspective is that this can also be 
uh, a curse. So, for example, there was this one young boy who was a street performer. And what he would do is he would do this act where he would take knives and put them in his arms. And then he would walk on burning coal. And people would give him money for that. So he was able to do that because he had this condition, because he had congenital insensitivity to pain. But what one researcher points out uh, about people who have this, you know, he's a guy who, who works on this topic and he's worked with uh, many patients who have had or who have a, a CIP. He says that a large number of his patients, in particular the males, tend to die at very young ages because they do reckless and dangerous things. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt, like they don't feel the pain, but it still damages their bodies. And so it this drastically lowers their their life expectancy. And tragically, this young boy who was a street performer on his 14th birthday decided to jump off a, a roof to impress his friends. And although the story goes that he got up, uh, he died later that day. And so the point of this is to say that even in a human society where we have all these things to protect us from dangers, it is very difficult to survive without the capacity to, to feel pain. It's not impossible and people do it, but you would think that with all our modern technology and all these things that we have around us that are supposed to keep us safe, uh, th this shouldn't be an issue, uh, but it still is. And so if that's the case, then what chance would a fish have to survive in the ocean, which is a much harsher environment than modern human civilization? What chance do they have to survive in the ocean? What chance would there be that they've been able to do this and live in this environment for hundreds of millions of years uh, before humans even existed. To me, that seems much more implausible than the idea that fish don't feel pain, given how critical pain seems to, to be to our survival. Yeah. So just to pull a quote from, from your video, you say, quote, pain is essential for survival. If you think that it's surprising that a fish feels pain, what would actually be far more surprising is if they had somehow survived for the past hundreds of millions of years without feeling pain. And it's it's just such it's kind of this like enlightened common sense, you know. <laughs> it's just yeah, of course, uh, it makes so much sense. Just such such a great point. Oh, thank you. Now, and actually, so another point about pain in fish, I was recently chatting with Becca Franks, who is a scientist, a researcher, and a professor at NYU, New York University, and she studies fish welfare and fish sentience. And she was talking to me about the research about pain in fish, and I was asking her all sorts of questions. But one of the central points that she brought up to me was that she said, think about uh, all this research that we're doing about pain in fish. Actually, one of the problems with all this research is that our starting points, our assumption, what, what in science they call this, they're not the, the null hypothesis, as this term that she taught me. But basically, there's this assumption, and the assumption that we start from is that fish don't feel pain. Basically, the scientific community assumes that fish are basically zombies who don't feel, they don't think, they don't suffer. And if we want to know otherwise, then we have to show it. So the burden of proof is on people who want to show that fish actually suffer. And the question she asked was, why in the world should that be our assumption? So you take other animals, for example, like dogs. With dogs, there's not this big debate of whether or not they feel pain. Our assumption is that they do feel pain and that they do think and that they do feel. Uh, but with fish, it's the, it's the opposite. And so that's one of the reasons why if you dive into the literature and you try to piece together what different scientists are thinking, that's one of the reasons why it can seem more divided than 
it actually is because those who are trying to demonstrate that fish feel pain have this task where they have to bring so much overwhelming evidence to the table that people can be skeptical of it and their skepticism is not seen as as that big is seen as very normal because the original position the assumption is that fish don't feel pain mm. and the idea is that uh, you know what like why should that be we would save so much time and the world would probably be so much better if we had it the other way around even applying something as simple as the precautionary principle where you know we're doing this thing to an uncalculably large number of fish it makes much more sense for us to assume that they feel pain until proven otherwise one scenario is okay we're um, you know, if we assume that they feel pain, we can try not to cause them pain. And then, you know, worst case scenario, uh, you know, like some humans miss out on eating a thing that they like. But the worst case scenario, which is what we're doing right now, we assume that they don't feel pain and we do whatever. Uh, the worst case is that we cause them an unimaginable uh, amount of suffering. Yeah. And so that was just one of the things I found very interesting about how, yeah, you know, there there is so much research trying to prove something, something so elementary. And one of the reasons is just because our starting point, our assumption is that, well, you know, they, they don't feel pain. And so if you want to prove otherwise, then then go ahead. But burden burden of proof is is on you. And mm-hmm. I, I just thought that to be very striking. Once again, you know, fish are seen as something so separate, so different than us, than animals, than avians when they're not. We're learning that they're so similar in so many ways. Uh, and yeah, just uh, yet yet another good example of why we should be talking about them, why we need to bring their plight uh, to the attention of people. Yeah, really, really good. So it's, so I, I, I know we've been talking about fish a lot. We have a lot of other things I want to get to, but I do want to touch on fish farms. Uh, you talk about them a bit in your video. I think it's important to talk about fish farms because fish farming is really on the rise. Uh, it's just really booming. They're building fish farms everywhere. Uh, and the industry, of course, is, is, is marketing them as being more sustainable, which we know they're not. And also now investigations are revealing that fish just suffer horribly in fish farming. Can you talk briefly about fish farming or is, you know, sure. be brief as much as you'd like? <laughs> um, sure. No. So, so the way that fish are farmed is very similar to the way that uh, other animals are farmed, uh, which is to say very intensively in, in horrible conditions. So the, the way to picture what a fish farm might be like, which is also how most chicken farms and most pig farms are, is to think about a morning commute on a crowded train. So if you've ever commuted to work during rush hour, you know that it's uncomfortable. Uh, it's crammed. It might be hot. It's sweaty. It doesn't smell good. It's just a generally unpleasant experience. A fish farm or chicken farm is similar in that it's also a place where you are crammed and it's uncomfortable just physically. But you're not just there for an hour in the morning, but it's where you go to sleep and it's where you wake up. It's also where you go to the bathroom. So now the whole floor is disgusting. And on top of that, when you leave that, what awaits you is not a nine to five job that's maybe not very pleasant, but it's a slaughterhouse where the only thing that's going to happen is you're getting killed. And so that's what fish farms are like. And investigations of fish farms routinely reveal things like, for example, there's a shockingly high mortality rate in fish farms. So for example, there is an investigation that I've referred to in the video where two organizations, We Animals and Esede Animali, uh, investigated these these fish farms across Greece, which is Europe's largest fish supplier. 
And what they found was that in those farms, and the way they put it is that according to the owners of those farms, up to one in five fish was dying before slaughter. Mm -hmm. uh, on top of that, if you look inside the fish farms, not only are the crams and uh, the, the water seems very unsanitary, but they suffer from, from various things like uh, deformities or injuries or illnesses. And it's generally a very unpleasant environment and it's safe to assume that this causes them uh, extreme suffering. And then when it comes to how they are killed, they're typically scooped up in these huge nets where when they're taken out of the water, and this is something that I never used to think about, but if you try to imagine what it must be like to be a fish in a net being taken out of the water, you're suffocating and you're being crushed under the weight of other fish at the same time. And one of the most common ways that they're killed is they're put into this mixture of ice and water, uh, which does a combination of suffocating them and freezing them to death. And there have been multiple instances that have been documented by investigators, not just in this particular one, but in other ones as well, where fish have been shown to show clear signs of consciousness uh, up to an hour after they were put on ice, mm. um, which yeah. is just the kind of suffering that I don't think we can uh, imagine. So fish farms are an absolutely horrible place for for them to to live and die. Yeah, it's a great analogy, the kind of commuter, a commuter uh, bus or train, because uh, I've, I've actually been to a couple fish farms. And when you walk up to the area that they're in, like the the pool that's, you know, generally about as big as a hot tub or maybe a little bigger, it, it, it's just black. The water is just dark and, and thick and you don't even really see fish. And then suddenly you realize that there are so many fish. The water is just moving and they are just on top of one another. And that water is so thick and dark because they're swimming in their waist that it's all full of their waist. And I just can't imagine what horrible, uncomfortable thing that would be. That would be if as if your whole existence was having to walk around on waste, you know, like you said, uh, in the rail car. So yeah, that's a good analogy. And just, it's got to be a really beyond uncomfortable, just a miserable existence. Yeah, for sure. So Ryuji, your fish video got the attention of Trevor Noah, uh, on the daily show. And you were invited to be on The Daily Show recently. Please tell us how that came to be, what that was like. I, I love The Daily Show. I, I love Trevor Noah in so many ways because of his just, you know, the, the wonderful satire and, uh, and spin that he puts on the news that can help you to kind of laugh at the horribleness of the world. So I love Trevor for that. But I also know that he is not vegan. And uh, so I love that you were on to kind of give him that vegan nudge. Uh, tell us what that whole journey was like. Sure. So, I mean, I was, I was just incredibly lucky. I think that somehow Trevor, who I, I also like a lot, I think he's incredible, um, somehow found some of my content. He watched the the fish video and probably sub saw some of my other videos, maybe on Instagram or something like that. Apparently, my understanding of the story is that you know he saw this and thought, oh, this this would be an interesting guy to have on the show. And he had his team reach out, and from there we we set up a date, and uh, you know that that's that's how that happens. But mm. yeah, no, the the entire team was was wonderful. They were all so kind to me. Trevor was incredibly welcoming. And yeah, I think the whole thing was uh, an overall a, a very positive experience. Nice. Yeah, it was an amazing segment. I mean, I, I think you did such an incredible job. And I actually 
mentioned it on a recent uh, podcast episode in my intro. You did such a fantastic job of bringing it back to the animals, keeping your message focused. And, and you have some YouTube videos uh, on your page about communicating as an activist. What advice do you have for communicating as a vegan? Yeah, great, great question. So I think that there are there, there are really there are really many things. And I, I think for me, like um I'm trying to find like a starting point, but really the key thing to know about communicating effectively, not just about this, but for anything, is that communication is a skill. And this is important to note because for me growing up, communicating was not something that I was particularly good at. I was never good at making friends. Uh, I didn't really understand how to explain things in a way that's interesting. And it's just something I, I, I never really thought about. Uh, but more importantly than that, I never it never occurred to me that I could get better at this. So I always thought, well, I'm, I'm not that good at communicating. That's eh, probably just how it's, how it's going to be. But it turns out that learning how to communicate effectively is a skill, much like learning how to ride a bicycle, learning a new language, or learning an instrument. It's something that you can learn from external sources, like by reading books or taking courses. It's something that you can practice and get better at by doing things, making mistakes, and then learning from your mistakes and trying better next time. And if you get outside your comfort zone and you work on it and you have the mindset that it's a skill, uh, it's it's something that, that you can improve. Now, when it comes to talking specifically about a topic like animal rights uh, or veganism, one thing that I apply all the time, whether I'm talking to Trevor on The Daily Show or just to someone that I meet, you know, randomly at some random events, is the, I, I don't assume that that person knows what I know. And I always talk to them in a way where I try to make it so that they don't need any prior knowledge of what I'm talking about for them to understand what I'm saying. And I think this is critical because oftentimes... I think that arguments get heated because someone assumes that the other person knows something that they don't. So, for example, you get in a debate about, uh, you know, the ethics of what we do to animals. And in your mind, you are aware of what animals endure on farms. You have seen their suffering. You have maybe been to farms yourself. You know what it's like in a slaughterhouse. You've you've watched the investigations. And so for you, this is an, an obvious moral emergency. But the other person may not have that knowledge. They may not have had these experiences. And actually, more often than not, they they haven't. One of my observations is that a lot of people vastly underestimate how much animals suffer on farms and in slaughterhouses. So I think that it doesn't serve us to uh, assume that uh, they know what we know. So that's one thing that I that I always keep in mind. So I always try to use simple words and and concepts and make things relatable with the assumption that, you know, I don't expect you to know uh, what I know. I don't expect you to have thought about this as deeply as I've thought about it. Like, it's it's my job, basically, to know about this and to, to, to research this and to watch the investigations and to think about this. Uh, but I know it's like, this is not people's jobs. So mm. in, in that sense, and I think having that frame that they don't know what I know and they haven't thought about the things that I've thought about helps me empathize with them. And when I talk to people, I always try to listen genuinely to what they're saying to understand, you know, what is it that they're really feeling and what is it that they're really thinking? Like, this is something that I actually care about. Everything that really helps me is to divorce people's actions with who they are. So even if someone is doing something that 
causes an immense amount of suffering, I don't automatically jump to the conclusion that they're doing that because they're a bad person. And divorcing that, people's actions and their character, uh, really helps me uh, speak to people with empathy. You know, th- those are some of the basic mm-hmm. tenets that I, that I try to apply when I communicate. I, I don't assume anything. I, I try to communicate with them with the assumption that they don't have any prior knowledge on what we're talking about. Uh, and I go to great lengths to listen to them. Because if you want someone else to listen to you, uh, I believe you have to listen to them first. Yeah, that's great. And you did such a great job on The Daily Show. I loved how you kept you kept kind of bringing it back to the animals. Uh, Trevor would mm-hmm. ask you anything. And and he even I, I remember at one point he said something like, well, you wouldn't like that, right? Or that you wouldn't want that or something like that. Mm-hmm. And you said, well, it's it's not about me. <laughs> it's not about me. It's what the animals would want, you know, or you, you started talking about how from the animal's perspective. Uh, and I love that. I really do. I think that that is uh, so important because sometimes conversations can get just derailed into all kinds of side issues. Uh, right. And and I think it's really, really important to bring it back to the animals. Who are we talking about? What's important? Uh, and you do that yeah, yeah, so yeah. well. Yeah. So I, th- I think the shift I've had in in the way that I have conversations is that I stopped thinking about because when I first started talking to people, I would I would think to myself, I want to talk to them about veganism. Uh, but then I shifted and I started talking to people not about veganism, but about animals and yeah. about who animals are and what they're going through and trying to ask difficult questions about what we should and shouldn't do to them. And I found this shift to be very helpful because if you think about it, veganism almost by definition is about us. Being vegan basically means that you go to the supermarket and instead of picking up the cow's milk, you pick up the soy milk. The act of doing that is what makes you vegan. And not only that, it's about what you eat. It's about what you wear. In other words, it's about what we do as humans. And I think that's why when we talk about it, the conversation can get caught up at that level where we're only talking about you know, what I'm doing and what I think as a, as a human versus what you're doing and what you think as, as a human. And I always try to emphasize to people that to, to the conversation that that at least I'm trying to have with you right now, like that is, you know, we can talk about that, sure, but that is irrelevant to the topic that we're talking about. Because what we're talking about is what we're doing to to animals and who animals are and questions such as uh, what is the uh, what is the difference between a dog and a pig that makes it so that it's okay to kill a pig, but not a dog. Uh, and And that's something that we can talk about without talking about what we're doing in and and kind of what we think we can talk about them and, and trying to bring it back to you know encouraging people to think about the animal's perspective is something that i found um very helpful yeah yeah i i love that and you know and i i'm certainly a proud vegan i love using the word but at the same time bringing it to the animals that's i think so critical like you said it's not about us it's not what we are or what we're labeling ourselves uh it's about not harming animals, not killing animals. So sure. it's not really about veganism. You're absolutely right. You know. So, so, um, the, yeah. uh, so, so just the, the thing about veganism is that it's it's one of many solutions to a problem. So the, the problem is this immense amount of animal suffering that occurs in the world. And being vegan is one of the solutions that we can use in order to attempt to reduce that suffering by taking personal responsibility for what happens to animals. Now, I think that the mistake that we make is that 
you know, if we start with the solution, that might not seem very relevant or important to people and people can get defensive about it because we're saying, you know, you should do this thing. And people are like, but why? Uh, and if you want to make a solution interesting or seem important to someone, it's important that they understand the problem first. If we agree on what the problem is, then we have some common ground from which to find solutions for that problem. Mm. Uh, but talking about that solution in isolation, to me, d- doesn't make much sense. So on another interesting issue that you uh, have talked about, you have a TEDx talk on the climate crisis. And you make this really important point about individual animals versus species of animals. And you talk about how the climate disruption problem is affecting us as individuals all over the planet, human and non-human. And you argue that we often don't recognize or care about individual animals when talking about environmental issues. And I think this is a really interesting subject. Do you want to talk a little about sure. that? Sure. So the, the idea is you think about uh, the climate crisis, what we're doing to the environments, and you think about how that's impacting animals. Uh, I think that if I were to ask a lot of people, you know, how, how do you think the the envir- like environmental destruction, climate change impacts animals? They would picture in their heads something like a polar bear starving in the Arctic, or maybe a koala burning alive in an Australian bushfire, or perhaps a turtle with a straw stuck in its in his nose. And I think people are right to think about that. And people would think these are the animals that we want to save. We want to, we want to help them not suffer, right? We want the polar bear not to starve. We want the, the koala not to, to be burning alive in the bushfire. And we certainly don't want a plastic straw being stuck in, in, a, in a turtle's nose. But that being the case, even though that's what we picture, when we have conversations about this and when we read headlines and articles about it, it's often talked about in terms of, uh, you know, we often talk about the issue in terms of things like species and biodiversity and the collapse of, of ecosystems. And these are not the same things. So koalas and uh, polar bears and turtles are animals. They're sentient. They feel and they think and they suffer. In contrast, ecosystems and biodiversity and species are abstract concepts that don't suffer. And even though we can attribute some value to those things, I'm not saying those things are not valuable at all. What I'm saying is that the hierarchy of how we value those two things are like is flipped. So typically, we talk about the issue as if the most important thing to preserve is species. We must preserve species at all costs, which is why, for example, when we have articles about those animals that I just mentioned, like polar bears and koalas and turtles, part of the narrative is that it's such a shame that a koala is burning alive in a bushfire because they're endangered. Or it's such a shame that this polar bear is starving the Arctic because they're endangered. As if the fact that they're endangered and the number of polar bears or koalas that exist is is declining, that makes their life more valuable. And that's a notion that I would push back on. I don't think that's because an animal, because the species to which an animal belongs is in decline, that means that that individual animal's life is more valuable than the life of any other animal. Why? Simply because I, I think that the most relevant way to establish the, the, the worth of the life of an animal is to look at the world from their perspective. And if you're an animal who's suffering, it doesn't matter to you whether you're one of a billion or if you're one out of 10. Your suffering is still equally as important to you just because you're the one experiencing that that suffering. And now to make this point clear that species and 
the the well-being of individual animals is not the same thing, I think it helps to do a thought experiment and to ask questions such as, what if we could ensure the survival of a species forever, but at the expense of the individuals from that species leading miserable lives? Put that way, most people would say that that seems like a, a horrible idea, uh, but it's actually something that we've already done. So you take chickens, for example. Chickens, arguably, is the most successful bird conservation effort in history. We have so many of them to the point where every single year we're able to kill about 10 times more of them than there are humans on the planet. Uh, we have this entire billion-dollar industry whose entire job is basically to make sure that chickens never go extinct. As long as the chicken industry exists, chickens are never going to go extinct. So from a species perspective, they're doing absolutely fantastic. But from the individual's perspective, they're doing horrible. They're selectively bred to grow so fast that by the time they're the size of a grown adult, which happens in about six weeks, they very frequently have problems doing the most basic things like walking and standing up and, and, and even breathing. So this clearly shows that just because a species is thriving doesn't mean that that's good for an individual animal. And conversely, because uh, an animal species is going extinct, it doesn't mean that that animal's life is more or less valuable. Um, that like that shouldn't factor in the conversation at all. And so uh, we often talk about helping animals. And the way we talk about it is we say, we must help species and biodiversity and ecosystems. And that can be true. But the way that we should think about it, if what we care about is the well-being of individual animals, like that polar bear and the turtle and the koala, then we should say, okay, let's prioritize the well-being of individuals. If protecting biodiversity or species or ecosystems helps protect the well-being of individual animals, then let's do that. But if it doesn't necessarily help, then I don't think we should be uh, attached to that. So I think that it's very important for us to acknowledge that, you know, the animals for individuals are not just uh, our companion animals and our farm animals, and it's also wild animals. And ultimately, if what we care about is the experience of individuals, if we want individual animals to have the best lives possible, then I think it's critically important that we put that at the forefront of our advocacy. And whenever we do talk about other things like species and ecosystems and biodiversity, it's through the lens of how does this benefit individuals? Yeah. Yeah. It's really frustrating to me when you hear of like a conservation effort that is killing animals. It seems so counterintuitive, you know, something like when there's like deers or uh, wild boar or um, feral pigs overpopulating an area. And so they send hunters in to kill them all to reduce the population. And let's step back for a moment and realize who's really the overpopulated species, right? Causing all the destruction, hitting 8 billion now people. But I think of these situations really as kind of a a, a lack of imagination. You know, I mean, we've I, I think we need to look at that as a failure because perhaps the situation in that area did improve in some way for the biodiversity or whatever. But what about the individual lives that were lost? What about perpetuating our view of animals as disposable, right? It's just not, it's not the ideal solution. We need to find solutions that both improve biodiversity and the environment, but also protect the individual animals. I feel like it's so critical. Yeah, so, so I think that the critical point is that because this is a, a perspective that is largely missing from the conversation, we have very little 
research and understanding of what solutions uh, might be. So, yeah. for example, one of the leading organizations that that works on this issue is an organization called Wild Animal Initiative. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to establish an academic field of study around the suffering of wild animals so that we can understand their lives better and ultimately understand how we can best help them. Well, Ryuji, it has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm I'm so grateful that you were able to take the time to be with us today. And I'm so grateful for all that you do, all your amazing work uh, in video and outreach. And I like to end the podcast with this question. What gives you hope for the future? Mm. Uh, that's a good question. I think that there are a few things that that give me hope. One is that in my experience talking to people, people are by and large good people who have good intentions. And I think that is a, a very heartwarming thing to see. You know, in general, they might not apply this necessarily to animals, but I think that in general, people have uh, good intentions and they're on board with the idea of making the world a better place. And I think one uh, shift in mindset that I've had more recently is that I used to think, well, humans, we do all these horrible things and the world would be better off without humans. When in fact, I'm not convinced that this is the case in in the long term. Uh, and I think recognizing, for example, that uh, nature can often be a very brutal place for wild animals, which is, by the way, one of the reasons that you know we live in apartments and have hospitals is because we recognize that the circle of life may be fun to observe from the comfort of our living room when we watch it on TV, but it's not fun to actually be in it. Uh, so that's why we have we have all these all these things. Uh, well, we were able to do this. We were able to, through our our creativity and innovation, make the world a better place for many humans to to live in. And so I have great hope that we can apply that same creativity and that same work ethic to make the world better, not just for humans, but for all earthlings. All right, Ryuji. Well, thank you so much for being on. We appreciate your time and all that you do. Uh, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by Compassionate Living. So I love that Ryuji said that he shifted his thinking from talking to people about veganism to talking about the animals. So important. I think this is a great takeaway from this conversation. Yes, we want people to go vegan. That, that is a goal. But what do we really want? We want to free animals from human-imposed suffering. And when you change the conversation to talking about the suffering of animals, uh, living in line with our ethics, how our beliefs, uh, th this universal belief that no one should needlessly suffer, I mean, most everyone can agree with those things. Veganism is just a natural extension of all that. It's the action that you take, not the thing itself right? And I think framing it that way is really brilliant. It's more approachable. So I hope you got something out of this episode. Please share it with your networks and your social media pages. Remember to look for signs of hope. They are everywhere. And live vegan. <laughs>